last, uh, two weeks ago actually, we looked at the tribulation. And for those of you, I mean, if you're first time here, just know and understand that we do serve a loving God. But you know what? There is a time coming very soon, I believe. Again, my opinion. But I believe there's a time coming in the not-too-distant future, could happen today, that the Lord is coming back. Now, the Bible teaches us very clearly that there is such a thing as a tribulation. And, we, and here's a basic event of what will happen in the end times. There will first be the rapture of the church. I believe you can see that in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that can occur at any time. Well, God will snatch his church away. Then there will be, a, uh, I believe, the leader that will come out of the 10-nation European economic community, which will be the Antichrist. You can see that from Daniel chapter 9. And after three and a half years, after there will be this time of tribulation, after three and a half years, he will set himself up to be God. He will first bring peace, and people will come unto this guy, and they'll say, man, this guy has all the answers for what we've been looking for. And then they'll realize three and a half years in, they've been duped. He will move to Jerusalem. He'll set up his image in the temple, and that is what is referred to as the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist will begin to control the world and force all people to worship and obey him. And at this time, God will send great tribulation upon the earth. Now we talked, and again, if you're here for the first time, and this sounds pretty scary, well, we're going right through the Bible, and this is where we are, so God bless you, okay? But the first thing we see during the last three and a half years of the tribulation is the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation that there will be judgment that will come upon the world. Now, God, again, if you think of God as this God up in the sky with a lightning rod just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can smoke you, that's not our God. Amen? Our God loves you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Christianity is not a bunch of legalistic rules that we try to keep so that God will be happy with us. The reality is that we've been born again and we're new creations in Christ once we confess that we need him as our Lord and Savior. And once that happens, then our lives change and we do desire to walk in obedience to him. But, though, but what will happen during that seven year of tribulation, but after the church is snatched away, is there will be first the seven trumpet judgments. We talked about this. I'm just going to make it brief so you know what, what's happening. First of all, in the first trumpet, a third of all the vegetation on the earth will be burned up and, and pass away. The second trumpet, a burning mountain will be cast into the sea, the Bible says. A third of all the sea will become blood. A third of all the living creatures in the sea. And a third of all the ships will be destroyed. The third trumpet will sound and a great star will fall from heaven. And a third of all the fresh waters on the earth will become bitter. Then a third of all the stars will be darkened. Then locusts and scorpions from the bottomless pit will torment mankind all those who take the mark of the beast for a five-month period. Men will desire to die due to the intensity of the pain, but death will flee from them. The sixth trumpet will be that the fallen angels, the demons, will be released to destroy all of mankind. Now, this is not a, a sci-fi movie I'm talking about. This is reality. Here's the sad part, though. In, in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, it says, But the rest of, the, of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons, the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You know, the reason that the Lord will bring judgment is to give people one last opportunity to know him. Everything that God does is righteous. Everything that God does is holy. He is a God of love and grace and mercy. And at the same time, he will bring these things to bring people back to a place of repentance. Then after that will be what is called the seven bold judgments, where the first bowl will bring lo loathsome sores to everybody who's left on the earth. If you know God, you don't have to worry about this because you'll be in heaven. But your heart should be broken for those who may be, still be here. 
The second thing will happen is that the sea will, all of the sea will turn to blood. Then all the rivers and springs of water will become blood. There will be no more fresh water anywhere on the earth. Men will be scorched with great heat. Men will not repent, but will continue to blaspheme God. The fifth bowl will be darkness and intense pain throughout the entire earth. It says that the pain will be so intense that men will gnaw their tongues because of the pain. They will continue to blaspheme God because of the pain and because of the sores head to toe on their body, and they will not repent. And let's refresh our memory. So that told us that there will be sores, there will be intense heat, there will be no water, there will be excruciating pain, there will be darkness and without death. What does that sound like? That's a picture of hell before hell happens. And you know what? All of it is an opportunity for people to repent. It's an opportunity for people to turn. And repentance is not a bad word. It's a great word. Amen? Repent means to turn. It means to turn away from the person I used to be and to turn to Jesus Christ and say, I need you as my Savior. Last of all, there'll be a dried up, the riverbed Euphrates will dry up and it'll open a pathway for the armies of the east to invade and what will be known as Armageddon. And then the entire earth will be shaken and mountains will disappear and 100 pound plus hailstones will fall from the sky. Where do you hide from a 100 pound hailstorm? The answer is nowhere. So the reality is that there's a time coming when God's judgment will come, but I want you to know this. Nobody will go to hell except those who choose to go there. And what I mean by that is that the Lord loves everybody. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. He desires to have a relationship with everybody in this room tonight, and He loves you enough that He'd rather die than live without you. That's what the Bible clearly teaches us. So tonight we've seen, that's the tribulation we looked at a few weeks ago. Tonight we're going to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the parable of the fig tree. The exhortation that Jesus gave to his apostles and also to us to watch, to be ready for his coming. And then if time permits, we're going to look at three different reactions to Jesus Christ. The first one will be the reaction of the priests and the scribes, the, the scribes excuse me, those who are the, the super religious people of the day. Then we'll see Mary anoint the feet of Jesus. And then finally, Judas's plan to betray Jesus. So let's take a look, beginning of verse 24 of, of Mark 13. And it says there, but in those days, after that tribulation, now that's a tribulation I was just telling you about, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So after all those other cataclysmic events have happened, the, the moon will be darkened and the sun will not give its light. And the culmination of the tribulation brings the absolute darkest hour on earth. And all light will be extinguished in anticipation of the appearance of the true light. Amen? You know what? It will be total darkness. So that when Christ appears, there will be no question. It's into total darkness that light shines its brightest. And that's one of the reasons I know that I know that I know that God called me to Santa Cruz. Because you may have lived here your whole life, but let me clue you in. I grew up here too, so I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. This is one of the darkest counties in the world. This is a place that is desperate for Jesus Christ. This is a place that's got its eyes so far away from God. And the name Santa Cruz means Holy Cross. And my prayer would be that one day, again, Santa Cruz truly would be a place of Holy Cross. Amen? And where Jesus Christ would be glorified, magnified, and lifted up. So you know what? It's in that pitch darkness that Jesus Christ will reappear. And it's in the darkness of Santa Cruz County that God has called us to be salt and light. And it's in that total darkness, again, that He will shine. Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession daily on our behalf. But guess what? He's not going to be there forever. At one point, He will return. The Bible it says here in verse 25, The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. When the Lord comes back, there will be a mighty shaking. When Jesus comes back again, it will be like lightning, and everybody will know it. And I want to make this real clear. Jesus didn't say, I'm coming again in secret to reveal myself to someone. Amen? A lot of people walking around today saying, Jesus Christ showed up and, and, and had a special revelation just for me. 
You know, the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses are built upon the fact that Jesus Christ or an angel appeared and gave them a special message specifically for them. That's not scriptural. That's contrary to the word of God. If anybody tells you that Jesus Christ came and gave them a revelation from God, it's not true because it's not found in scripture. So when Jesus does come back, we'll all see him. It won't be a mystery. The people that are left here on the planet will all see him, I should say, because we'll be in heaven. So when he comes, all the nations of the earth will mourn over the rebellion against Jesus Christ. It says in, in Zechariah 12 that Israel in particular will mourn over the rejection of the Messiah. Look at verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. It says they will look upon him who they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns over their only son. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the incredible grief in realizing you had missed the Savior? Can you imagine? Can you imagine living this life and realizing that you had missed out on the very reason that you exist? The reason that each one of us was born is so that we might know Jesus Christ. Amen? That we might have a loving relationship with Almighty God. And you know what? The sad part is that people think that we live for something else. We live for our job. And again, if we have a career, there's nothing wrong with that. We should have a job and do our job as unto the Lord. But the reason we live is to know Jesus Christ and to make Him known. Amen? It's to have a relationship with Almighty God. And so... It says here in verse 27, And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now all the elect from heaven and earth are gathered and assembled before Christ, including the 144,000 Jewish people, we'll see this when we get to Revelation, who will be saved, the Jewish witnesses. There will be 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel who will come to know Christ during the tribulation period. They will be his witnesses upon the earth. There will be those who will come to know Christ during the tribulation. But let me just tell you something. Those who come to know Christ during the tribulation are going to have it difficult. Because if they don't take the mark of the beast, they're going to be beheaded, the Bible says. They're going to pay with their life. And you know what? It's going to be a difficult time to come to know Christ. We should come to know Him now and we'll avoid all that. All And all of us will be with Him in heaven. We will return with Him. And this will be the culmination of world history, ushering in what is known as the Millennial Kingdom. But before the thousand-year reign begins, Jesus with us behind him will return to earth, defeat his enemies, be received by the Jews, and then establish the millennial kingdom on earth. How many of you knew, know that after the tribulation that we will live on earth for a thousand years, seeing what it would have been like had Jesus Christ been in charge? How many know that's true? That's a fact. The Bible teaches that. Okay? Some of you go, whoa, really? There'll be no sin, no death, no sorrow. Now, there'll be those who come through the tribulation. And again, we'll get more depth in that when we get to the book of Revelation. Now, I want to read this to you. And I'm just going to read it to you because I want you to see what that time is going to be like because it's going to be intense. It says in Revelation 19, this is about eight verses here I'm going to read to you. So let me read it. It starts in verse 11. So now I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And he who sat on it, said on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes were like the flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had the name written that no one knew except him. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's the Word of God? That's Jesus. Amen. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fight linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, again a representation of the Word of God, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and on his robe... And on his thigh is written the name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is coming back. But when he comes back, it will not be a secret. Amen? So if anybody tries to tell you the Lord's been back and has given them another revelation, that is not from the Bible. Let's move on. Now we're going to look at the parable 
of the fig tree. Look at verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, as we've been going through the Old Testament especially, we know that the fig tree is a representation of what? Israel. Okay? And it says, when the, the par- when the branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. The budding of trees indicates that summer is near. Verse 29. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. The beginning of the signs indicates the Lord is coming back. And we talked about this in verse 6 through 23 last week about the, the birth pangs that point to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Quick reminder what they were. Wars and rumors of wars. Let me ask you a question. Do we see wars and rumors of wars on earth today? Okay. Famine. Do we see famine on earth today? Do we see pestilence? AIDS is an example. Do we see earthquakes? Yes, we do. We live in California. We've always seen earthquakes, right? I mean, false Christ. The Bible says in the end times, many will come proclaiming themselves to be God. Do we see a lot of people coming along? You know, David Koresh's of the day. People coming along proclaiming that they have the answer. Also, though, the fig tree is a picture of Israel nationally, historically, and scripturally. On May 14, 1948, something happened that has never happened before and hasn't happened since. And what that is is the rebirth of a nation. In the history of the world, there has never been another nation that ceased to exist and that became a nation again, other than Israel. People used to mock the, the, par- the passages in the Bible that talked about Israel. They used to try to say, well, it must be the church because Israel doesn't exist anymore. Well, guess what? Israel, Israel does exist. Amen? And you know what? The par- and when we see the reforming of the nation, the fig tree blossom once again when the land of Israel returned to the Jews. Verse 30. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now there's two possible interpretations for this verse when it means, when it says, this generation will no means pass away. What generation? Either those who see the signs, the birth pangs that Jesus spoke of in this chapter, the wars, the pestilence, the famine, the false Christ, the earthquakes, the things that it talks about happening in, in major numbers, or those who see the fig tree bloom again, which is the rebirth of the nation Israel. So who is this generation it's talking about? I believe it's us. Again, no man knows the day or the hour. I'm not trying to give you scare tactics to scare you into the kingdom of God. Because you know what? You don't get scared into the kingdom of God. Amen? Now we need to know that hell is a real place, but we come to Christ. It says the love of Christ compels us. But I want you to know that the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Amen? And Christianity is not a hope so, it's a no so. You can know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you've been born again. But at the same time, we need to understand and see that it says this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. So this generation, a generation can mean a time period anywhere from 30 to 100 years, whether it's a generation from a father to a son or a generation as in a lifetime. So based upon that, we know that the time is somewhat short if it's based on May 14, 1948 which I, often, I believe it is, but again, that's my opinion, all right? Next, rest of verse 30 again, it says, and then it says, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my word will no, by no means pass away. Now, isn't that awesome? Heaven and earth will pass away. The universe as we know it will be completely altered. 
God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. The sun, the stars, the moon, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, vegetation, the animals, all that stuff will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. Amen? What's our verse? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not hearing by puppet shows. Amen? Not building marshmallow towers, right? It's not about, you know, how we can entertain you. It's about the truth of God's word taught without compromise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible says the pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. How do I equip you guys? I feed you. You know, my kids won't grow if I don't feed them. And, you know, they just keep getting hungry, and that's a good thing, so they're going to keep growing. And, you know, we don't grow unless we get fed. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And the things of this world will pass away, but the word of God will endure. Can there be any greater emphasis on the significance of God's word? Again, may we invest in that which is eternal. Verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So who knows when Jesus Christ is coming back? The Father. Anybody else? The Bible says no one knows. But isn't it amazing that people are always giving you dates? Anybody ever, ever anybody hear somebody giving a date? Jesus, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. How many remember that one, right? Then they made 89 reasons for 89, and I think they gave up around 90 or so. But the point is that no one knows. No one knows. Only God knows. And again, when I tell you that, you know, I believe we're in rapture season, the Bible says we can know the season, we can know the time, but no man knows the hour. And to me, that's not a bad thing. I think that's a great thing, because you know what it does? I believe it should increase, it should increase the, the amount of anticipation of his return, because we don't know when it's going to be, because that means it could be tomorrow. Amen? If you knew it was 10 years from now, you might, oh, well, i got 10 years, right? But aren't you glad that you don't know? In a way, it's awesome. It's a blessing to know that only God knows. The time of Christ's return will be revealed in advance, will not be revealed in advance to any man, not even the angels. While they share intimacy with God, they're around his throne. They don't know. Now, this is, a, this is a part that a lot of people struggle with, where it says here, nor the Son. Now, who's the Son? Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his incarnate state, was fully God and fully man. And when Jesus became a man, he voluntarily restricted his use of certain divine attributes. Now, he, didn't, he was no less God. I want to say that. But I want to say that he did because he took on manhood so that he could suffer and die on our behalf. He took on some things that were contrary to his divine nature in heaven. And, and what I mean by that is, when he came to earth, he hungered. Didn't he get hungry? He didn't get hungry in heaven, but he got hungry on earth because he became a man. He was tempted. Do you know that God the Father cannot be tempted? Did you know that? But Jesus took on the form of man so he could be an always like us tempted and yet without sin, the Bible says, right? So anything you've gone through, Jesus Christ went through. Any struggle that's been before you was put before him. And yet he did it without sin that he might be that perfect sacrificial lamb of God. All things that the Father could not be. And while Jesus demonstrated his omniscience on many occasions while he was walking on earth, he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. Didn't he tell the Pharisees to answer questions they were only thinking about? Right? Because he was God. Didn't he say, Nathaniel, I saw you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Remember when Nathaniel showed up? When you were over under the fig tree, I saw you. When he's talking to the woman at the well, he says, you, you know, you answered right. You're not married. You've been married five times, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. Again, he showed his omniscience, that he's an all-knowing God. But at the same time, while God cannot forget, God can choose not to remember. God cannot forget our sins because he can't forget because he's God, right? But he can choose not to remember. Amen? 
And Jesus Christ, out of his love for us, chose to become fully man that we might have eternal life through him. Now, I absolutely know that as he's in heaven that he knows because he's back in his glorified state. But at the same time, when we get to heaven, we'll still see the nail prints in his hand. And he will still continue to carry around the, the body that he was crucified in. But again, he is still fully God. Jesus being our ultimate example was a complete submission to the Father in all things. And that should be our heart and our mind and our passion to be complete submission to God the Father. Jesus held nothing back from his disciples, even to the point of showing them his glorified body in the Mount of Transfiguration. And he didn't hold back from them the truth about the end times because it was withheld from him at this point. Verse 33. Here's, what, here's a warning he tells us. Take heed, watch, and pray. If you underline in your Bible, probably some good words to underline. Take heed, watch, and pray. The word there, basically Jesus is giving a warning to believers. And he's saying, beware, keep your eyes open. That's what, what take heed means. Watch means a call to stay awake, to be alert, looking for approaching danger. And finally it says pray, emphasizes the believer's constant need for divine assistance. You know what? I'm blessed that I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm blessed that I've been a Christian for 34 years. But I'll tell you what, I need to be on my knees all day long. Amen? The Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. I love to wake up in the morning, begin my day with Him before my feet hit the floor, and I call it putting God on speakerphone, because I just don't ever hang up. Amen? I can talk to God while I'm driving around in my car. Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. You want godly inspiration, godly wisdom, and godly direction for your life? Spend time in His presence. He says, take heed, watch, pray. Be prepared and know that He could come back tomorrow and live every day like He's going to. Amen? I mean, it doesn't mean we all go camp up on a mountain and say, okay, Lord, you're coming today. That's not what He said. He called us to be salt and light to a lost and dying world, to live our lives sold out for Him. You do not know. When the time is. The Bible couldn't be any more clear. And yet people again continue to say. Look what it says. For you do not know when the time is. My little brother Andy. Who's usually here but he's not here tonight. When he was a kid he used to say something that drove everybody nuts. You'd ask him. Hey Andy where's your remote control? He'd say you don't know. Whenever you'd ask him something that he knew the answer. And you didn't he'd go you don't know. To drive me crazy. He's like seven years old. Would you stop that right? But the reality is. If you want to, if, when it comes to Jesus Christ and his return, the answer is, you don't know. Amen? You don't know, because you don't know when he's coming back. And no man knows the day or the hour, and we need to be ready that he could come back tomorrow. We need to live again life with more, not less urgency, for Jesus' soon and coming return. Verse 34. It is like a man going to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to earth and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. The doorkeeper guarded the outer gate of the house so as to be ready to let the returning master in upon his return. And as Christians, we should be like doorkeepers, always remaining alert and vigilant for our master's soon return. Verse 35. Watch, therefore, you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. These are the four different watches that they had during the night. There were four three-hour watch times that expanded over a 12-hour period. And he's saying it could happen any time during the watch. Again, he's making the point clear that no man knows, so we must be ready. No matter when the master returns, the doorkeeper had better be ready, awake, for him to return. Verse 36. Lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. Opposite of alert watchfulness is sleeping. Believers should be watching and working in the light of the certainty of his return. You know, 
there's nothing that I believe that breaks God's heart more than people who call themselves Christians who are asleep at the switch. And what I mean by that is, is Christianity. You know, I walked an eye and I file and I prayed a prayer and I got the get out of hell free card in my wallet. You know, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and, you know, and I'm, you know I've got it right here. Look, it's signed by somebody. And, and now I'm just living like the world and I forget about Jesus Christ. I have nothing to do with him. You know, the Bible says that those who know God, we will abide in him. It says if you abide in him, we will inherit eternal life. I love what Raul Reese says. If you're not abiding, you're not going. And what he means by that is not that you can lose your salvation, but works do not prove salvation, but salvation results in good works. Amen? You know what? If you've been born again, you're different. The Bible says the person you used to be dies. You become a new creation in Christ. And you know what? As Christians, we don't walk around living like the world. The Bible says we're aliens here. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. People should say there's something different about you. What is it? Man, you have joy when things go wrong. Well, that's because I have a heavenly perspective. Amen? I'm going to heaven. It's one of my favorite statements. No matter what happens, the reality is you're going to heaven. And you know what? You can't threaten me with heaven. I mean, what, the worst thing that happened to me, I walk out here and get hit by a bus. I'm in the presence of Almighty God where there's no more weep, weeping or sorrow or pain or suffering. And a mansion that he's prepared for me, I, that blows me away. All this in heaven too? Praise the Lord. Amen? And so the reality is that as Christians, the, the, there should be fruit. Our lives should be different. We should not be the self-righteous ones looking down our nose at people. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. You're not. You need to be born again. Oh, you're going to go to... You know, and again, I've said this before. You know, you see people standing out in a box. You're all going to fry in hell. You know, I've never seen anybody repenting at one of those boxes in my life, right? Because that doesn't drive people to the love of God. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. We should be living lives so different that we should be glowing in the dark for Jesus Christ. Amen? People should say, man... What's different? It's Him. And we should not be asleep. We should be faithful. Verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to you all, watch. Jesus concludes by making it clear that His admonition was not only for His disciples, but all who might hear His words. Watch. Be on constant alert. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Colossians 3.2, which says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. So often what happens is the reason that we're bummed out, the reason that we struggle, the reason that we get... We get worried. The reason that we get anxious is we're so focused on the stuff that's perishing. You know what? When you're focused on the things of God, nothing can get you down. Amen? Because I'm going to heaven. Because the creator of the universe is my best friend. Now, it's not by chance that right after Jesus gives an incredible warning about the tribulation and the devastating consequences that await those who reject him, and he exhorts his followers to watch and pray, to be diligent, we're going to see three differing reactions to Jesus Christ. The first one will be the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, most of you know who the Pharisees are. We've talked about this many times. The Pharisees were the most religious people of the day. If anybody living, if you went up to the common man on the street and said, who do you think is going to heaven? Oh, man, the Pharisees. It was like the most elite of all the Jews. Why? Because they wore the black robes and they received the tithes and offerings. They were the ones that could go in the most holy place. They could make the sacrifices of the lambs. And people thought that, you know, they prayed out in the street and, every, and they lived in the temple. You know, these are the most holy guys of all the holy guys. And people look at them and think that they were, wow. But the reality was that the Pharisees, when Jesus met them, he had a few different words to say to the Pharisees. He said, you whited sepulchers. 
You brood of vipers. You guys are a bunch of snakes. You look like you're like your you're tombs is what you guys are. You're, you look good on the outside, but on the inside is a bunch of dead men's bones. Why? Because you have outward religion and you have no inward relationship. To them, it was a position. It was a place of authority where men looked at them and thought they were wonderful. Again, pastor does not mean the guy in charge. Amen? Pastor means servant. It means under rower. It's not, here's the pastor, here's the people. It's here's the people and here's the pastor. The Pharisees had it totally flipped around. The Pharisees thought the people should honor them and pay homage to them. And they loved their position. They loved lording it over people. And the Lord went in and turned the tables over. They had turned the, their father's house into a den of thieves. So when the Lord comes to them, and look what it says here. What's going to happen in the last days? How do these people react to Jesus Christ? Verse 1 of chapter 14. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. So what do the Pharisees think about Jesus Christ? What do they want to do with him? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. Why? Why did the Pharisees want to kill Jesus? Matthew 26, we see that he's saying, Jesus is saying that in a couple days from now, in, in, in that context, in a couple days from now, I'm going to be delivered up and crucified. He's letting his disciples know very clearly that he's going to die. And Passover has always been a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. For all the years they were celebrating Passover, it was always pointing to the day that Jesus Christ would die on the cross and be resurrected from the dead. You guys remember the first time of Passover? How many of you have seen the movie Ten Commandments? All right, then you've seen it, okay. What happens? It's the last of the plagues, remember? And it, the plague was that if you didn't put the, door, the blood on the mantle and the doorpost and down at the feet of the door, if you did that, then the, then the angel of death would pass over and the, people, the eldest son or daughter living in that home would not be put to death. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the cross. What kind of blood did you have to use to make this cross? It had to be the firstborn spotless lamb. Again, who's the spotless lamb? Who's the lamb of God? Jesus Christ. It all points to him. So it's Passover time, and they're celebrating the fact that they've been delivered out of Egypt. And here the Pharisees are and the scribes are. They're celebrating Passover that points to Jesus Christ. And what do they want to do with Jesus? They want to kill him. Now, they should have been down on their faces worshiping him. Amen? These are the guys that taught the Old Testament scripture. These are the guys that made the sacrifices. So can you be religious and not know God? The answer is absolutely. You know what? I believe that most very religious people do not know God. Because you know what? Religion in the world today has come to mean something totally different. In most cases, religion is man's pursuit to do enough good things to make God happy. And then somehow God will owe me and then he'll love me. But the word religion, religio, it means to relink. And that's what religion really is about. It's relinking man back to God. We were unlinked from God when we sinned. And guess who the missing link is? It's not Cro-Magnon man. Amen? Who's the missing link? It's Jesus Christ. He came back and he linked man back to God through his death on the cross. The Passover was pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament scripture pointed to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to put him to death. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it's interesting to me. It says there, that was a time when they commemorated the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. It began after Passover, and it lasted for a week. It represented the absence of leaven, of sin, in their lives and in their households. So what were the two feasts that were happening? Passover, the blood of the lamb pointing to the crucifixion. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed to the fact of the removal of leaven, which is a representation of sin. 
So through the blood of the Lamb, Passover, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the removal of our sin from our lives. Amen? And these are the feasts that they're celebrating. Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they're saying, crucify him. Put him to death. And you know what's happening in the world today? They, want, they don't want Jesus. They don't want to hear about Jesus. We, some of you, it was a blessing. We came down here yesterday, and we fed, and praise the Lord for Ed and, and his wife and many others who came down here. And we were able to feed, I don't know, I'm bad with numbers, 150 people, something like that. And there was one guy, his name was Noah, and man, he was mad at me when I talked to him about Jesus. Boy. I don't believe it. I don't want you know, tell him to come down here and show me the nail prints in his hands. You know, and he just went off on me. And they didn't want to hear about Jesus Christ. And I thought about, man, you know, how sad that here's a man that I said, you know, Noah, here's the good news. No matter what you say about him, he still loves you. And until your last breath, you have an opportunity to know him. And it's not by how good you are. And man, you must have some Christian parents or something, because I don't know too many people named Noah. Amen? And you know what? And that was a picture of God's deliverance. But there are people, when you talk about Jesus, what, are the, what do the courts want to do with Jesus? Get him out of the schools. Don't talk about Jesus. Get the ten Don't tell kids they shouldn't murder. That might mess them up and warp them. Get that down off the wall, right? I mean, we, we've got it all messed up, and the scribes and the Pharisees didn't get it. And they knew the, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. No, they knew about it. And they knew all the rituals. They knew all the rules, but they didn't know Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people walking around, going to, going to church on Sunday, and they have churchianity. They don't know what it means to have Christianity, to be a Christian. These self-righteous religious, they controlled the prophets from the temple. They viewed Jesus as a threat to their way of life. Most people who don't want to know Jesus Christ today view him as a threat to their way of life. Wait a minute, if I become a Christian, that means I, wait a minute, I can't party with my friends anymore, right? Oh, forget it. That's no, you know, I don't get the party with your friends thing, the puking in the gutter. That's, that, is that fun? Headache the next I don't get that. But people think that's joy, right? And they think that that's something to just, oh, I'm going to have to give up puking in the gutter for Jesus. But, you know, that's the truth. And they say, oh, well, I'm gonna, I, I won't be able to, to sleep around anymore. You know, I won't be able to, to lie and cheat. And say, uh, no, you know what? The reality is that when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, that stuff won't be fun anymore. Amen? You know what? As Christians, we don't, we don't run to sin. We flee from it. Amen? It's, you know, we still sin, but the difference is now we're convicted by our sin. And we desire so much to, to walk in closeness with Almighty God. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't get it. They said, you know, he's going to be a threat to our lives. We've got to put him to death. They're celebrating the feast, and they're wanting to kill the very Messiah that every one of the feasts pointed to. Caiaphas was the, the chief priest, and he had head knowledge, but he was spiritually dead. He chose position and power and personal comfort over truth. He chose religion over relationship. And though eager to kill Jesus, it's interesting to me, look what it says in verse 2. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. You know, it's amazing to me, he fears men, but he doesn't fear God. Right? And that's the way a lot of the world is today. You know, don't raise your hands, but how many of you, is it so much easier for you to pray for other people than it is to tell other people about Jesus? Some of you don't do either. I want to encourage you to do both. Amen? You know, we need to pray for people, and we need to tell other people about Jesus Christ. But a lot of times it's easier to pray, because it's a lot easier to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God, right? And what happens here is that these guys have such a fear of men that, that they're worried. Well, you know, what? he's just, you know, the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe. You know, I mean, he's the, the fruition of all the Old Testament prophecy, but we got spiritual blinders on him. The only reason we're not going to kill him is we're afraid of what men might do to us. It's scary. Desire to kill Jesus, just waiting for the right opportunity. Now, we're going to go from one extreme to another. And now we're going to look at a woman who understood what it meant to worship Jesus. 
And I'll tell you what, I would pray that I would have the heart of this woman right here. Let's pick up in verse 3 and look what it says. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came in having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, first of all, imagine this scene. They're in a home. Simon the leper is there. Do you think he still has leprosy? He wouldn't be at the table if he still had leprosy. Guess what? Guess who's the only one healing anybody of leprosy? Jesus Christ. So who's sitting at the table? There's Simon. Guess who else is at the table? Lazarus. Because this is in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now what happened to Lazarus? He was risen from the dead. Now leprosy is a typology or a picture of sin in the Bible. Amen? And you know what? When, when everybody else would see a leper, what would they say? Leper! Right? And they had to say, unclean! Unclean! Everybody would run. Leper! Oh! They'd all run away, right? And can you imagine? That's a wonderful life to live. Everywhere you go, everybody runs away from you as quickly as they can. Unclean! And they all just run away. But you know what's awesome to me? What does Jesus do with lepers in the Bible? What does he do? He touches them. Don't you love that? Now, when you have leprosy, no one's touching you. They're running away from you. But Jesus Christ touches the leper. I love that. Can you imagine how the leper must have felt? Instead of being repelled and running away and seeing, you know, his, uh, your, you know your body literally decays and falls apart. It's a nasty disease. And the Lord reaches out and touches them and heals them. That's a picture of what Jesus Christ did to every single one of us in this room. Amen? You know what? You were all lepers. You were all dead in your trespasses and your sins. A lot of people don't want to tell you that. But you got, you know what, guys? You're a bunch of stinking sinners, man. Right? For all reads, okay? But I am too. I'm a stinking sinner saved by grace. It's not, I'm not righteous because I'm a good man. I've been made righteous because Jesus Christ died for me. Amen? And so what happens is that he touches the leper. But what's even more awesome to me is at the same table as Lazarus, and we know the story, Lazarus died. And when he showed up, it, Lazarus was a close friend of his, and when he shows up, Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you'd just been here, if you'd just been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And I love it because the Lord comes and says, Jesus wept in that text. He's weeping over the consequences of sin. Had there been no sin, there'd be no death. Amen? You know that? That's why there's going to be no death in heaven, because there's no sin in heaven. So there's, because of sin, there's death. But I love this. If Jesus Christ steps forward and says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? He came hopping out. That's what's right happened. He was in grave clothes. He came hopping out of the grave. And you know what? If Jesus hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, if he had just said, come forth, every dead person who ever died would have got up out of the ground. Because Jesus Christ has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? So can you imagine, sitting at the table, you've got a leper who's been touched, and, and, and then you've got Lazarus. And that's a picture of what happened to each person in this room. We were touched by God, the leprosy's gone, and when the leprosy went away, the Bible says we became new creations in Christ. Amen? We've been resurrected. We're new in Him. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We're made alive to Christ. So sitting at this table, there's Simon the leper. There's Lazarus. The, the apostles are all there. They're sitting around Jesus Christ. And this woman comes walking in. And as she comes walking in, we know from John chapter 12 that the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she's mentioned only three times in the Gospels, and I love this. In Luke chapter 10, she sat at Jesus. Every time we see her, she's at Jesus' feet. Every time. That's a good place to be. Amen? I mean, every time you see her, where is she? She's at his feet. First time, she sat at his feet and listened to him as he taught the word. The second time, she fell at his feet after the death of Lazarus and cried out to him. And now, in this time, she worships at his feet when she will anoint him with oil. When you combine the gospel records, we learn that she anointed both his head and his feet. And what did she wipe him with, wipe his feet with? Her hair. 
Now, you might say, why in the world would she wipe his feet with her hair? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen that a woman's hair is her glory. And what she was saying was she came, she knelt down, and she broke open this oil. She surrendered her glory to the Lord and worshipped him with her most valued possession. We see later in the text here that Mark sets the value of this oil at more than 300 denarii, which is nearly a year's wages. This was probably kept in her home in a very special place. Alabaster was a precious stone that was carved and they would hone it. It was just beautiful. And they would hold real strong perfumes in it. And typically it was your dowry for your wedding day. And you would put it in a special place just waiting for that day when you would take the most valuable thing that you had and it would be a part of your dowry for your wedding day. And you know what's awesome to me? Is that she knew and understand that there was nothing more valuable that she could do than give this to Jesus Christ. Amen? Because she went and she broke this open and she took her glory and she said, it's not about me, it's about you, Lord. And she wiped his feet. And you know what's awesome to me? Is it's a picture of what we should be doing. Giving the most valuable thing in the world that we have to Jesus Christ. Amen? And you know what's awesome too? Is that was a dowry for her wedding day. And you know what? We are the bride of Jesus Christ. Amen? This was the ultimate picture of the wedding day that is to come. Again, Mary had heard Jesus' words. She knew that he was going to die and be buried. And the truth that seemed to be escaped the apostles. And Mary's act was an act of love, devotion, and worship that w- brought fragrance to the whole house. You know what? When we worship God in spirit and in truth, it brings fragrance to the whole house. Amen? When she, when she did that, and I, you know what? I did a study years ago just talking about the fact that this is just not too long before Jesus Christ went to be crucified. And you know what? I believe that when they were whipping his back, the perfume that she poured out on him, the smell of that was still coming out. When they crushed the thorns in his head, I believe that perfume that was in his head was still, the smell of that was still coming out. Her worship was still pouring out all that time later. And you know what? When we worship God, it should impact everybody around us. And everybody in that room could smell the aroma of the worship that Mary had for her Savior. Look at verse 4. And it says here, But there was some who were indignant among themselves, and said, Why is this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Well, we know from, from, the John, from John, guess who it was, it was it was being critical. Who do you think it might be? Judas, right? You know, we could have sold that. You know, we could have had some money, given it to the... Man, he, he kept the money bag, man. He just wanted the money for himself. And we know that's true because we're going to find out what he does here in a few verses. Judas doesn't get it. Judas has no clue. And let me just tell you something. The other disciples didn't understand the true character of Judas, and they too were criticizing Mary for what she had done. Mary was the only one in the room who truly understood what it meant to worship. It was, again, an act of love, adoration, brokenness, sacrifice, focused only on the recipient of her praise. Mary thought nothing of herself. When she went down to worship him, she took her hair down. She wasn't worried about her hair. She wasn't worried about her glory. It was about his glory. Amen? When she broke it, this possession, she gave all that she had. She gave the best that she had, and she poured it out upon him. And I, and I think it's also interesting to note that the worship couldn't happen until the vessel was broken. Amen? And you know what? We cannot truly worship God until we're broken. Amen? You know, if we come to God in pride and arrogance and self-righteousness... That's not worship. We need to come to Him broken. Lord, I need you. I'm desperate for you. Without you, I can do nothing. Amen? A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Right? Everything else when broken, again, we take it to the swap meet, we sell it for a quarter. Right? But when we're broken, 
we become more valuable in the eyes of God and in the hand of God. She wasn't worried about the others at the table. She didn't care what anybody else thought. She wasn't focused on them. She was focused on Jesus. That's worship. Amen? A lot of times we go and we think we're worshiping, but we're worried about how we sound. Who else has been guilty of that besides me, right? Right? You're worried about how you sound. Well, my boy, man, I might be flat. You know what I mean? You know what, God, it's, it's sweet incense in His presence. Amen? When we worship, we're singing to an audience of one. He's the only audience that matters. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. Get your eyes on him. Be singing to him. That's what Mary was doing. She was broken. She had given her most valued possession. She's wiping his feet with her glory. And she wasn't worried about what anybody else thought, said, or did. She was only focused on him. True worship focuses only on Jesus Christ. Judas, on the other hand, is a tragic figure. He's an apostle, which means a sent one. He had walked with Jesus for over three years. He had heard Jesus' words. He had watched Jesus heal, perform miracles. He received the power to heal, it says in Mark chapter 10. But in spite of this, affiliation with the apostles and his association with Jesus Christ, Judas did not know God. Outwardly, Judas had everybody fooled. You know when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, that nobody knew who it was? Really, Lord, is it me? They didn't all go, oh, it's Judas. They didn't do that. Because outwardly, what? What had he done? He had everybody fooled. Why? Because he was playing the game. He was keeping the rules. He was a religious man from that point of view. And you know what? I want to encourage you with something. You can fool man, but you can't fool God. Amen? And my hope would be that you don't come to church because your girlfriend wants you to come. Well, praise the Lord. I'm glad you're here for whatever reason you're here. But the reality is that God has no grandchildren. Amen? You can't be saved because your parents are saved. It doesn't matter if your great-great-grandmother was a missionary in Africa. You know, praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. But that doesn't get you any brownie points in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. God has children. Amen? And you can be one of his children. But either Christianity, again, it's not a hope so, it's a no so. You can know for sure. And Christianity doesn't happen by osmosis. You don't get saved because you go to church. It's because we repent of our sin. We see our need for a Savior. We ask him to come into our lives. We say, Lord, not me on the throne anymore. I want you on the throne. I want you to rule and reign in my life. Judas, it says in the Bible that it would be better for him if he'd never been born. I've had people try to tell me, oh, Judas is just part of God's plan. Well, that's true because everything's part of God's plan. But the reality is that Judas chose to sin. And Judas, it would be better for him if he'd never been born. Can you imagine what it must be like for Judas in hell? He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw him heal people. He heard every word that he taught, and yet he rejected him. We, each one of us has to come to a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. His actions had everybody fooled. Like many Christians today, Judas was in the group of believers, but not of them. Like Mary, when we give Jesus first place in our lives, we can expect to be criticized. Here's Judas criticizing Mary. We've got to solve that. Unbelievers will criticize us for our walk with God, and so will some people who say they know God. You know if I, if I hear dial it down one more time, I hear, I've heard that more times I can count. Man, you know, would you just relax with the Christianity thing? You know, you know we're at work now. You can, you know, could you just check your Christianity at the door? You know, you don't have to talk about Jesus all the time. You know, could you take your Christian stickers down? You know, you don't have, you know come on, man. Just, you know, can't you just be normal? <laughs> you know what? If normal means separated from Almighty God and hell-bound, no, I don't want to be normal. How about you? Amen. You know what, I love, you know, people get excited about the 49ers. Oh, Niners, oh, oh. you know, you can, be, you can be a 49er fanatic, and that's okay. A Raider fanatic, that's okay. But if you're a Jesus fanatic, something's wrong with you, you know. 
you know what? I want to be a Jesus freak. How about you? Amen? I want people to think, man, that guy loves Jesus more than anything. Well, praise the Lord. That's how I want to, I want to be identified that way. Not so that people think I'm a wonderful guy, but so that people will see that God can do things with a wretched man even like me. Amen? That he might be glorified. That his name might be lifted up. And Judas is, is blasting her. And you know what? She didn't care. She wasn't worried about what Judas thought. She was worried about being at the feet of her Savior and showing him that she loved him. Judas missed Jesus because he was looking for a physical Messiah, a physical deliverance. When Jesus repeatedly refused to become political, he turned against Jesus Christ. Look what it says. He says, why this waste? It's interesting to me that Judas' name in, in John 17 is the son of destruction, the son of perdition, or the son of waste. You want to talk about a waste? Judas. Amen? He's walking around Jesus. He missed it. That's a waste. Not taking the most valuable thing that's earthly anyway and pouring it out all over your Messiah. Verse 6. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do good to them. But to me, but me, you do not have always. Here, I'm almost done here. Here's what's interesting. I want you to notice this. Jesus is not downplaying ministry to the poor. He does reveal, however, that it is a higher priority than earthly ministry. The highest thing we can do is worship Him. Amen? Above all else. And when we minister to others, we should do it with a heart of worship toward Him. Amen? You know, we can do a bunch of good deeds. You know, we can be the Kiwanis Club or something, right? And we can do a bunch of good deeds. We can raffle off stuff and get, you know, build things. We can do all that kind of stuff. But it's meaningless if Jesus Christ isn't at the center of it. Amen? If Jesus Christ isn't here tonight, we're having a speech club or something. Jesus comes to Mary's defense. Further proof that not only had the apostles missed the point, they bully, again, they voiced their complaints against her, but Jesus comes to her side. And he clearly states his coming death, and they miss it. And you know what's awesome to me? Look what it says in verse 6. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Again, he's telling them over and over and over. He tells them over and over again, I'm going and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to die. And when he dies, they all go, oh, and they run away. Why? Because they weren't listening. Amen? And you know what? Jesus is telling us over and over and over again that he's coming back. Amen? And there are people that are not listening. They're missing it, just like the apostles missed it. Mary didn't miss it. Mary heard, Mary worshipped, Mary gave him all that she had. I'll tell you what, and it says, it says here in verse 9, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Guess what? Mary's worship was so awesome that it's in the Bible. Amen? It's in the Word. We're talking about it now, 2,000 years later. Because she gave him all that she had. Think about it. Mary brought joy to the heart of Jesus Christ through worship. Have you ever thought about making God happy? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you can bring joy to God? You know, the Bible says that you are his treasured possession. You think about God of the universe who can create anything he wants. He's God. He can say it. There it is. What could he possibly treasure? What could be valuable to him? The Bible says, it's you. You are it. You're what he treasures above all else. And you know what? How do you determine what you're worth? What someone's willing to pay. And what was paid for you? The son of the living God came and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. How valuable are you to God? You are so valuable. 
He loves you. Know again that Christianity is not a burden of you trying to do good things and make God happy. He loves you. That means we too can bring joy to the heart of Jesus Christ through worship. Amen? It's sweet incense and aroma in His presence, the Bible says, when we worship Him. He loves when we worship Him. You know, we don't worship just so you guys can get up and sing and get ready to sit down and listen to me talk for 45 minutes, right? I mean, we're, we're entering into the presence of Almighty God, and it's a blessing in His presence. You know what? I've shared this with you guys before. One of my favorite words in the English language is daddy. I love that word. My kids are older. They still call me daddy. I hope they call me daddy when they're 40, if the Lord tarries. Because I love that. I love being a daddy because I love my kids so much. It hurts. It does. I, I, again, I drive down the freeway thinking about my kids. I weep. I love my children. And I am an infinite, sinful man who needed a Savior. And if I love my kids that much, I love when I'm sitting down and my kids come get up in my lap. Love that. People think I'm crazy, but I used to love getting up and doing the 2 o'clock feeding. That's my wife. I love that. I would love to just hold them and sing to them and just you know, have that baby smell. You know what I'm talking about, right? And just feed them and just have them close to me and let them hear my heartbeat. And you know what? Because it's just, they're so dear. Now think about this. The Bible, one of the names for God is Abba, Father, which means Daddy. And do you know that me, an imperfect man, loving to have my kids crawl up in my lap, do you know that God the Father loves it when you just draw near to Him and you crawl up in His lap and you tell Him that you love Him? He loves that more than anything else. And when we worship, I believe that's exactly what we're doing. Say, Lord, I just love you. I want my focus to be on you. Lastly, it's the last person example, this is two verses. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought out how he might conveniently betray him. So he saw the example of the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. We see the example of Mary. She went and gave him everything that she had, and she poured out her most valued possession. Then we see the example of Judas, who was willing to betray Jesus Christ for money, for 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, is the price for a slave. He betrayed Jesus for a fraction of what Mary poured out on his feet. Mary gave all that she had, and he was willing to turn his back on Jesus Christ for very little. Let me tell you something. Anything you turn your back on Jesus Christ for is very little in comparison. Amen? If it's Bill Gates' bank account, it's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. What do people betray people Jesus for today? For money, for career, for possessions, for pleasure. So, in, in summary, the worship team will come back up. Jesus is coming again soon. We are to be aware of all the signs that he's coming. The sense of urgency. Watch, pray, and be ready. The chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees missed out on relationship with Christ because they were so caught up in the religious rituals, position, and praise of men. Studied and taught about the Messiah, but they missed him. Judas missed out on relationship with Jesus because he was looking for a political conqueror rather than a spiritual savior. He walked with Jesus. He heard him teach. He witnessed the miracles that he did. He even, Jesus even washed Judas' feet and he betrayed him for the price of a slave. And then finally, Mary gave all that she had to Jesus, recognized him for who he truly is. God manifest in the flesh, the great I am, the creator of the universe, who came to earth to take the sin of all mankind. And I just want to say this in closing to you guys, make it really clear. Christianity is not bondage to a bunch of rules that you can't keep. 
If you're here tonight and you think you can't be good enough to make God happy, you're right. Amen? That's why He came and died for you. And once He has, the price is paid. When Jesus died, His last word was to Telestai, which is, it is finished. Amen? It's not Jesus plus 47 other things we have to do. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. And if you have repented of your sin and asked Him to be your Savior, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You don't have to walk around being bummed out and condemned. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough. You know what? The Lord loves you. And He died for you. And don't fall into that trap. May we worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've been set free from sin and death and condemnation through a joyous love relationship with Almighty God. And may we worship Him and gift Him out of thanksgiving for what He has already done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You, Lord. And I thank You that each one of us can know You in an intimate and a personal way. That You're not a far away God. That You love us so much. And Lord, it's not us achieving it through a higher level of consciousness or us trying to achieve a higher plane through, through self-denial. But Father God, it's coming to a point of realizing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. So, Father, I just ask, Lord, for each person here tonight, you pour out your spirit afresh on each one. And, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, just open their eyes to their need for you as a Savior. Lord, may each one of us right now just worship you in spirit and in truth, not focused on what's going on around us, but singing to an audience of one. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand up and worship.